Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 1045 a.m. and 5 p.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. In uh, Vietnam, there was actually a little guy who was named My Fat Sao Nien Roy. I think that's his name. It actually comes out to mean um, penalized $6,500. That was his name. My dad was penalized $6,500. That was his literal name. Uh, He was having trouble at school because kids were teasing him. The fine for having more children than you were allotted by the government was $6,500. And so his dad just named him $6,500 fine. He didn't love his name. He finally was able to impress on his dad that it was important in order for him to be able to make good grades for him to have his name changed. And so they pursued that and eventually were able to win a legal battle and he could change his name to Golden Dragon. All right. From a fine to a food chain, but it's still a step up. <laughs> what would that transition have been like? We forget how valuable a name is. In the United States, quite often, we'll pick names. And uh, in fact, they say that among this generation right now, uh, we have the most made-up names. In other words, it doesn't come from family lineage. It's just names that they've made up or you've made up the spelling. You don't want your kid's name to be spelled like anybody else's name. And the result is that quite often your child comes up with his own spelling of his name and it sticks. That remains permanent. But what is happening to a whole generation that does not know who they are and do not, does not know to whom they belong? Is there value in a name? In this section of Scripture, we see value in a name, and it's a name that uh, represents the Lord's hunt, his deep desire to see people come to Christ, and their response Once it was known that they were a part of the family of God, they respond by calling themselves Christians. It's an important passage. We're at the end of Acts chapter 11. The end of Acts chapter 11, we've just seen the salvation of Cornelius and his family. Gentiles now have an open door to the gospel. And that story has unfolded and leads us right to this moment at the church in Antioch, verses 19 through 30. Let's stand and read this passage together. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preached the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad, and he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with 
the church, and they taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all of the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Do you believe that actually happened? It did. You may be seated. Fathers, we look at this passage. I pray that uh, you would open our eyes and our hearts that we might be able to see what you would have us gain from this. You wrote this passage so that we would be transformed, so that we would think differently about how we live, so that we would see how you energized the church in that day, and we would draw principles for today. Help us to see those and to apply them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. One author says, when the saints were scattered abroad during Saul's persecution of the church, some of them ended up in Antioch, the capital of Syria, 300 miles north of Jerusalem. There were at least 16 Antiochs in the ancient world, but this one was the greatest of them all. Antioch, uh, we have a picture here uh, on a little map just so you can wrap your mind around it, uh, is up on the, the top of the right there, the right hand side. If you just go straight up from uh, what would have been Jerusalem right there, you run into Antioch. Uh, on that map, it's the same size, that little dot, as all the other uh, small cities that they were going to. But actually, uh, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. You had Rome, you had Alexandria, and then you had Antioch. It was when Greece was divided up into four different uh, areas. It was part of that Seleucid uh, kingdom. Uh, one of the generals of Alexander the Great had actually received this as part of his empire and turned it into one of the great cities of ancient times. At the time that uh, the church was born, and in that city when Greeks were beginning to hear the gospel for the first time, uh, they believed that that city was between four to 500,000 people. It would grow at its largest to be around 800,000 people, three times larger than the city we live in today. It was also a decadent city. It was a city that was known for having a four-mile-long road. I think we have a picture here in Ephesus of one that would have been similar, paved with marble, Having stanchions on each side, they were able to do business in little booths that were on either side of this. This four-mile-long road was one of the first ones where they would put fires in it at night, and they would light it up at night so that they could have commerce in the evening and so that people could come out and greet each other. Four-mile-long paved marble road in this magnificent city. Uh, it was a wonder to be there. It was filled with all kinds of cultures. It was a place that was hard to be Jewish, and it was hard to be a Christian. It was filled with paganism. The, uh, the worship that was going on there was all idolatry. There was a place called the Grove of Apollo that was, in essence, just one extended brothel. Uh, horrifying acts, indecent acts that were done out in public as part of their idolatrous worship. It was an active part of what was going on in that city at the time. So wicked was the religion there at Antioch uh, that the river Orontes was considered 
uh, to be filthy when one Roman governor was trying to say that Rome was falling apart, that its decadence was ruining it, that its morals had shifted. It said that all the filth of the Orontes has flowed into the Tiber. All the filth of this city has flowed into Rome, he was saying, and we have become a filthy nation. There was wickedness all around them. And this is the place where people were first called Christians. Warren Wiersbe says, when the persecuted believers arrived in Antioch, they did not at all feel intimidated by the magnificence of the buildings or the pride of the citizens. The word of God was on their lips. The hand of God was on their witness. A great number of sinners repented and believed. It was a thrilling work of God's wonderful grace. In the middle of this place, there was all of this transformation that was going on. And this is the place that Barnabas and Paul would first practice their discipleship and would be discovered as great leaders in the church. I just want us to notice a couple of things out of this passage because this is uh, maybe not as well known, but it is one of the central passages that uh, marks a transformation in the book of Acts. There are some significant things that happen in these 11 verses that set up the rest of the book. So I want us to notice... A couple of things that are going on, and in particular, I want us to look at it from the view of being a Christian that was planted there in a church as a Greek or those that are outside of the Jewish community in Antioch in that early day. So this is the first of its kind, a church that is planted by outsiders, not by the Jerusalem church uh, that is thriving What is it that God would have these believers understand? Four things. The first thing that I think God wants them to understand and he wants us to understand is that God knows how to find you. God knows how to find you. Remember it says in verse 19, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. Those who were scattered, if in your uh, notes there or in your Bible, if you've got one of those uh, Bibles that we provided on that journal entry, you put down 8-1. So chapter 8, verse 1, this is the scattering that happened as a result of the persecution uh, that arose after Stephen's martyrdom. The church has been pushed out of those areas and it has been chased and it lands in Antioch, a place where they thought, man, we're surely going to be safe. We can hide among all of these people. And the two things that stand out to me is that it says that those that were scattered there received the word. God knows how to find you if you have been scattered from your home. Do you know that? If you've been pushed out, if you are despondent, if you've been separated from those that you love, or you've been pushed out by circumstances, God knows how to find you. But also, he knows how to find those who desire to follow him. He knows those who are lost, who are soft towards him. And he knows how to find the lost. Amen? If there's anybody that is willing to respond, God will find a way to get them the good news. This is what we see in this passage. It is a shocking thing in the book of Acts. Each time that we see God at work in in the way that he, he comes in and causes faith to flourish, he causes people to respond, it is a supernatural movement. And that's what we're seeing here, is that without any apostolic help, this church springs to life and comes to recognition 
of the apostles. The apostles heard about the existence of this church after God had caused them to find faith. God's unseen hand often uses unknown men and women to win unreached people. That's how he works. Remember, it says there that the scattered Jews spoke only to Jews. Why? They weren't sure if they were safe. And as they're going, they're going into waters. If it was unsafe in Jerusalem under Roman care, how unsafe were they in one of these great metropolitan cities? So they are going there, speaking only to other Jews in the synagogue, telling them about Jesus, but nonetheless staying with, uh, as they sought, their own kind. Until men from Cyprus and Cyrene come with the gospel And I believe that's right on the heels of Cornelius. Cornelius gets saved. He's a Roman centurion. Uh, He's not Jewish. And they say, wow, if they can have faith, shouldn't we be sharing with everybody? And a group of people impacted by that story show up in Antioch and begin to share the gospel. And a church not only springs up, but it says a great number of them came to Christ. This is the first time that we see outreach happening to those who had not heard of Jesus. Every other person, the uh, Ethiopian eunuch, Cornelius, anybody else that we would see coming to Christ, they had a curiosity because they had heard about those things and they sought more information. In this scenario, you actually have an outreach that is happening in the city and people begin to believe in Jesus Christ as a result of the testimony of those believers who went and evangelized. It's the very first time that evangelism happens and a major church grows as a result of it. I was thinking about this and I was thinking about how God uses unthinkable people to reach unreachable people. Some of you are here today Not because an evangelist came to you, not because a pastor came to you, not even because a deacon or an elder came to you, but because somebody, through some unthinkable process, just ended up in your space sharing the gospel with you. There are some sitting in this auditorium today who others would say, man, they are unreachable, all right? And yet you're here and have submitted your life to Christ. There was a story long time ago uh, called Mutiny on the Bounty. Some people thought it was just a made-for-Hollywood uh, movie, uh, but it was based on an actual situation where a ship, the HMS Bounty, had uh, Captain Bly at the helm. He was known to be just a bitter pill of a captain. As a result, his men were always rankled underneath him, and they end up uh, in Tahiti or some of the, the islands uh, off in the Pacific. And as a result of Uh, all of the hardship that they had left. Um, It it was an incredible journey for them to be able to get there, all of this hardship, and then they arrive in what they thought was paradise. Now, these are a bunch of sailors. They were a bunch of guys who weren't known for religion, and they arrive in the islands, and they see all the beautiful women. They see all of the alcohol that is made in those locations. They see all of the warmth and the happiness, and they're like, this is not like England. And so they begin to imbibe there, and they begin to live lascivious lifestyles, and the result was that their hearts became welded to those islands. They wanted to stay there rather than go back to England. So as the ship takes off, they have a mutiny, and they, they throw their captain out. They stick him in a boat with his uh, first mate and a compass and say, I hope you can make it. They give him some oars, and that was it. And they head back to the islands. 
The mutineers uh, pick up some of the island people. They, they had uh, around 15 to 20 uh, women and a, a few of the men, and they travel trying to get outside the, the boundaries of where uh, England would find them. And these mutineers ultimately uh, end up in the Pitcairn Island area. They settle that island. Still 50-some people that are living on that island today. They settle it, and because they are so wanton in their desire for pleasure, they end up destroying all of the men except one, all of the women except 10, and 23 children that had been born to them in a couple of years after they went to this island. They settled it, they burned the boat so that nobody would be able to find them, and they say, we're staying here. And eventually only one guy is left, a guy by the name of John Adams. Adamstown, if you look on the Pitcairn Island today, is still a settlement. It's still there to this day. And he's looking around at all the desolation that their wanton pleasure has led them to. They have completely destroyed everything that they thought was going to be of value. There's nothing left. And he sees all of these people that are now left in his care. And he says, what is going to happen to us? And he finds a Bible after they had burned the ship. It was in one of the lockers that was on the ship. They pulled it off to the island, and he finds a Bible inside there, and he begins to read it, and he just says, we're going to live out the Sermon on the Mount. And he begins to just read the Bible in order to teach them how to read, to teach them English. Uh, they have still a version of English that's there that's kind of uh, that and their native language mixed and mashed together. But they learned all of their truths from Scripture, and when they were finally discovered some 15 years later on that island, um, what they said is, 15 years after the last man had died, Adams is the only one left. They found a Christian society, they said, well-behaved, settled, and in its right mind. Completely transformed by the reading of the Word. They were so shocked at the transformation that had happened in those people and in Adams himself that he actually was granted amnesty. They said, we don't want to do anything with uh, you and the mutiny that you inspired. Stay here, live among these people, finish your days. How is it possible that a mutineer and all of the wretchedness that was in their heart, they were going to live out destruction until they died, could end up settling a place that would be so filled with faith? It is only the Lord working through his word. He uses unthinkable people to reach unreachable people. God knows how to find you. But the second thing we see in this passage is that God knows how to affirm you. Your culture and background are a blessing. They are not a hindrance in the Lord's hands. Who you are, where you come from, what has happened in your life, God can use all of it. Do you believe that? How did this news arrive in Jerusalem? Well, somebody, remember, it's not started by any of the Jerusalem leaders, so somebody had to tell them, man, I don't know if you know this, but there's a whole bunch of people calling themselves Jesus followers that are in the city there. Shouldn't we check that out? Their numbers are eclipsing our own. We have no idea what was told to the Jerusalem church. All they knew was there's something huge that is happening there. We better go and check it out. The church leaders needed confirmation of the faith that was happening in that church. Was it faithful to Jesus? But the church that was there, that fledgling Gentile church needed affirmation of their faith. Are we following the truth? And so the Lord put them together so that both those things would be affirmed. 
who better to go than Barnabas? It says this report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, why Barnabas? Remember all the way back in um, Acts chapter 5, Barnabas was called the son of encouragement. He was a man from Cyprus. He was actually from the location that these evangelists have come from. If we heard that there was an amazing work that was going on in Portland and and it was a bunch of rednecks from Roseburg that were inspiring the work, I already know they would tell us on staff, hey, we need to check out what's going on up there. Why don't we send another redneck, right? They would just send me (laughs) to go and check it out. You know how to speak their language. By the way, I, I want you to notice that he didn't come and right away just change their culture. He didn't come right in and say, hey, what are you guys doing in here? In fact, it says that when he came, he saw the grace of God and he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord and steadfast in their purpose. Why? It says, for he was a good man. Now, the inverse of that is true also. If he had come and not encouraged them, he refused to see the grace of God. If he did not exhort them to stay faithful, if he was irritated that they looked differently than the church in Jerusalem, he would not have been a good man. Do you see that? He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. There were many people that were being added to the Lord. God knows how to affirm a church. He didn't just come in and change their culture. Now, I do want you to think about this. Uh, There's two major food chains that are well known around the world, McDonald's and KFC. Are you aware of this? Kentucky Fried Chicken is right up there with McDonald's in name recognition around the world. There's something interesting, though, about Kentucky Fried Chicken. Wherever you go around the world, instead of just having their 11 herbs and spices, right, they actually change from culture to culture to culture. They change the recipe. Why? Because what is awesome to you here is not awesome in New Delhi, okay? You need in some places a little more flame, in other places a little more bland. I don't know what it's going to be like, you know, up towards uh, Moscow or in England. Probably they just dip it a little bit and put it in lukewarm water, right? (laughs) Whatever would make it not tasty. But here you have a a recipe that changes with the culture, but it is still fried chicken. Wherever you go, do you know that there are some things that we do in the church here that are a part of our culture, right? But how silly would it be for us to go to South America or to Africa and to demand that they sing like us and dress like us and act like us in order to be Christian? Is that in Scripture? No. No. What's in Scripture is we need to put our faith in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. That He's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. But if you happen to wear different clothing or appreciate a different style of music in your worship or those kinds of things, you don't come in and instantly adjust. It says that He was a good man and He saw what was going on. Now, by definition, these people are alone. The other Jerusalemites that had come there were still just associating with the Jews. They were separate. Barnabas is there to include them in the faith, to tell them, hey, what you are doing is faithful to the truth. And he fans the flame of that faith. 
I can remember when we were coming back from a trip and uh, we were coming through Washington, D.C., and it's just always gnarly in D.C. I don't know if anybody's come through there. They call it organization. If you're in a good straight line, they'll mess it up. If you're not in a messed up line, uh, they'll find a way to make it worse, all right? And in the confusion, everybody seems angry, and there's all these officers, and it's intense and chaos coming into Washington, D.C. I think they're just trying to make sure that the culture at the airport is the same as it is in all of politics, okay? A complete mess. Nobody knows where to line up or what's about to happen. So we're coming forward, and I can remember the mess, and somehow I'm getting separated from my family, and I see my wife and my kids uh, were able to get safely through this line, but I got stuck in a separate section. I had a New York Yankees hat on, and I'm, I'm working my way up towards there, and all of a sudden this big, burly guard is looking at me, and uh, he looks across, he says, hey, come here. And I'm like, oh no, now it's, it's on, right? I'm stuck in D.C., I get over there, and he goes, come here. And behind his desk, he's got his phone propped up, and the Yankees are up by 12 (laughs) runs. He goes, he says, just look at that for a minute. He goes, look at what your boys are doing. He goes, you you from the U.S.? And I said, yeah. (laughs) Hold up my passport. He stamps. He says, good job. He gives me this, like, bro pump and a hug and stamps my passport and sends me into the United States. Greatest greeting in the history of coming back. (laughs) It was so awesome. Look at what your boys are doing to these guys. Man, he didn't want to change me. He wasn't upset at my hat like most of y'all are. (laughs) It was a good greeting. Do you want to know what that church needed? They didn't need a bunch of correction. They needed to know because they were desperate to know the king of the universe. And God sends them a person who says, hey, I've been with these guys, all of these people from Cyprus. I understand the way that they are. And I also understand who you are. You are loved by God. And he confirms their faith. He knows how to affirm them. But there's a third thing we see in this passage, and that is that God knows how to grow you. Over and over again, we see this, and they turned to the Lord, a great number, verse 21, who turned to the Lord. In verse 24, it says, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and a great many people were added to the Lord. There are all of these people that are coming to the faith. I want you to see that God knows how to grow your number. He knows how to increase the number. He knows how to increase, whether it's a church Uh, or just the tribe of people, if it's just you, it feels like, at work, and you feel like you're the only believer, God knows how to add one more to that base. When I was growing up, we had this sourdough start that was sitting in the back of the refrigerator, and uh, my my dad is just a diehard sourdough guy, right? So there are all these rules to whether or not you get to touch the start or participate in causing this thing to grow. This was a sacred start. Came from Sourdough Jack in the Yukon. Not kidding. He had the storyline right there. This is his start, his flavor. And so we had this specialty start in there. And he would pull that out and he would set it near the fire, not cooking it, but just near a place that was warm. And he would feed it with these ingredients. And overnight, this bowl would swell from this little start all the way up to filling up this. And he would make these sourdough pancakes with this active sourdough start. But it is boiling with bacteria. I didn't know at the time that it was bacteria that made it grow. I just thought it was magic. When I discovered that it was bacteria, though, it did pique my curiosity. Do you know how hard it is for bacteria to grow in the cold? 
It's almost impossible. It would take an act of God for bacteria to grow in the cold. That's why, as we were talking about last week, Antarctica is the place to live. (laughs) Safe from uh, coronavirus there. Here we have a place that is cold when it comes to the true faith in God. Antioch. How do you get faith to grow in the cold? It takes an act of God. It is evident that the Spirit of God is all over this growth because there is nothing to encourage them. There is no uh, place for them to be able to grow up. It took the Lord's activity to grow a church there at all. And yet one not only springs to life, but it grows in number rapidly where people are seeing the truth. Not with a little bit of warmth, not with a little bit of kindness, in a cold and a dark and a heartless place, faith springs to life and it has all the evidence of God. God knows how to grow your number and to take care of you, but also he knows how to grow you in obscurity. Verse 25 is so important. He's a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and a great number were added to the Lord. So, when you read so, that means because there were so many that had come to the Lord, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he sees that more people had come to Christ, he says, we got to do something about this. And he goes to Tarsus. Now, what you need to know is that in these 10 verses, we have gone from Cornelius and that early days of the church. Remember all the way back when we saw Saul get knocked off of the horse, right? Probably around A.D. 34. Here we have a guy that uh, had been breathing threats and murder against the church. He gets knocked off the horse. He comes to Christ. This is 13 years later. All right. In just a few verses, we have jumped ahead in the timeline 13 years. For three years, Saul was out there learning about the Lord. He goes, he meets Peter. He says, is what I am believing, what I've been taught by Jesus, the truth, and all of the church in Jerusalem says, you are absolutely teaching the truth. And so he goes to Tarsus, and for 10 years, after that three-year time in Arabia, he has been sitting up there just teaching other people, still named Saul, called Paul by a bunch of those Uh, that were not Jewish, but he has been laboring away in obscurity. Nobody knows where Paul went, except Barnabas. Now, our best understanding is that Barnabas undertook this 100-mile journey, traveling on his own, just out of his own heart. Hey, I know the guy that will be able to best reach these people and not focus on shaping them to make them look like us as Jewish believers, but shaping them to look like Jesus as Christians. So he goes and he gets Paul. Paul has actually been training for this the entire time up there, working with people that are outside of that normal calling that they saw in Jerusalem. He knows how to grow your number. He knows how to grow you in obscurity, but he also knows how to grow you through discipleship. Verse 26 says that when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. He taught them how to go from just believing to faithful following. Do you know that that's important? God doesn't leave any orphans. You don't just get saved and then move on with life like you're going on to something new. The gospel isn't just something that you get out of the way. Uh, Hey, I believe in the gospel, and then you move on with real life. The gospel is your entry point into applying the gospel to every aspect of who you are until you see him face to face. 
And Paul begins to disciple them in this process of being shaped by their faith in Christ. It is this place where they were first known as Christians. Um, One author has said that your identity often comes from what the most important person in your life thinks about you. Your identity often comes from what the most important person in your life thinks about you. The most important person in their life was Jesus. And therefore, everyone around them called them Christians. They were followers of Christ. Just pause and think about that. What do the people around you call you? Who is it that they say that you follow? What is your identity to the people around you in your own family? at your workplace, out in the community. You want to have an identity crisis? You just make the most important person in your world you, or your boss, or your sports team, or your spouse, or your kids. Boy, that'll lead you to an identity crisis, right? What do my kids think about me? Your friends. If it is not Jesus, you will lose your identity and you will not be able to find your way. They found their identity in Christ. He knows how to grow you. But the final thing we see in this passage is that God knows how to reveal you. Verses 27 through 30 tell us about now in this new church, they were presented an opportunity in the form of a trial. It says, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem. Now, when you look on the map, Jerusalem is below, and you see Antioch up high. But anyone coming down from that center of worship was seen to have been coming down from the mountain of God. And so they were saying they came down uh, to this place that was secondary in their minds to Jerusalem. So here are people from that great leadership center in Jerusalem that are coming down in their minds to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. We know that that hit uh, in Jerusalem around A.D. 48. So all of the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. We see a little of this report in Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul's telling his story where he goes back and is seen by the leaders in Jerusalem. Um, he's telling that this was an important part of him being launched into the next phase of him as a leader, as a, a key apostle, as a writer of Scripture. This is the moment. He is revealed not only to these people as a key discipler, but revealed to the church as somebody who was a leader to be recognized as having compassion. They gather up money, and here is this little group of Greeks, Gentiles, outsiders, who were stirred by God. Now, the Jerusalem church is saying, I wonder if these people are even believers. And the Spirit of God stirs them to send back a financial gift that says, hey, the famine hasn't even hit yet, but we have been stirred to prepare so that you would not be destroyed. And their generosity reaches the Jerusalem church. The Spirit of God had proved himself in there by their generosity. In Acts chapter 5, 
we first hear the title church. This is when the church is first called the church, and it's in a moment of church discipline. Acts chapter 5, church discipline happens. We see this moment where God purifies those people, and they were called the church. But in Acts chapter 11, they were first called Christians when they collectively acted to meet the needs of others. First called a church when we police our own. First called Christians when we bless those around us. When we go and meet others' needs in relief, that is the identifying mark of a Christian. They will know we are Christians by our love. He revealed them. How do we know that they are Christians? Because here these people, instead of being divisive, instead of being irritated, they said, no, man, there's a need for these Jerusalem brothers to have finances in order to be able to take care of the church, and they sent money. They were generous. God revealed who they were through their activity. There is uh, another story of a name change, a guy by the name of Raven Knoll. The Daily Mail says uh, that thousands of dollars um, came his direction because his last name, Knoll, when it was put on a receipt at hotels and for car rentals, actually was picked up by the computer as registering that there wasn't actually somebody staying there. Knoll was the same way of saying that there's no name here. And so it, the computer didn't know who to charge. So he became famous shortly for, in essence, fleecing uh, a group of hotel chains. But the story unfolded, and actually the shocking part of that is that that wasn't originally his last name. He had changed his name to Null because he felt rejected by his family, and in fact, over a long period of years, had had no contact with him. His last name, he said, was Null and Void. I actually have no relationship with anybody that is close to me. So I named myself Null, and he would not tell anybody what his original last name was. He became this guy that uh, was a curiosity to us because he was getting freebies. But it became a devastating story because he was cut off from all other relationships because of his name. This story that we're reading about right here is the exact opposite. Here's a group of people that were cut off from everyone, and God sends a group of evangelists to them, an unlikely happening. He sends them in there. They come to Christ, and there they receive a name. They are Christians, followers of Christ, people who are identified by Jesus. They are part of a family that extended not just into their city, not just beyond their culture, but all the way back to Jerusalem, they were tied to that central church in a significant way. They were all followers of Jesus. There's no hierarchy here. Amen? All family. And God confirms their faith. This is an an amazing transition that happens in the book of Acts. It reminds us of a couple of things, and I would have us think about that. First, it reminds us of the importance of being a follower of Christ. Who do people say that you follow? What would they say about your identity? What is the most important thing? Who is the most important person in your life? And what do they think about you? Is the most important person in your life Jesus? If not, commit in your heart to make him so today. But the other thing that is really important is the idea of reaching out. 
here in this moment, we see that a group of people took it upon themselves not to wait until there was curiosity about Jesus, but to actually go and to tell others actively about Christ. And what happened? A large number came to Christ. And when other leaders showed up, another large number came to Christ. Do you know that even in our day and age, even right here in Salem, there are people that are dying to hear about Jesus? They are hungry for the truth about Christ, and they want you to just come across the street and share. Are you willing to go? That's the question for this morning. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to find our identity in you and to find in ourselves a hunger, a passion to go and to share the gospel. And I pray, Father, Uh, that this morning you would tune our hearts to follow you, that you would cause us to chase after you with such strength, with such intensity, with such a strong desire, uh, that people around us would call us Christian, not just because we've identified ourselves that way, but it is evident, written on every aspect of who we are, that we love you. Help us to follow you. Help us to walk this out, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.